The only thing that we changed uh, was that candidate A was the Democrat and the candidate B was the Republican. And our candidate A goes from winning by plus 34 to losing by one. And so that's a 35 percentage point difference just by having the party ID next to your name. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is John Ray, who is director of polling at YouGov Blue. John recently looked at public opinion in rural America on a project with recent guest J.D. Scholten of RuralVote.org. We had a good talk about his path to his current position, as well as what he discovered about political attitudes in rural America. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with John Ray at YouGov Blue. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, John. Hello, Nathaniel. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is John Ray. I'm the director of polling at YouGov Blue. Uh, YouGov Blue is the division at YouGov that works with democratic, progressive, lefty, left-leaning candidates and organizations. As for biography, I'm happy to go into as much detail as you would like. I was uh, born in beautiful Louisville, Kentucky, spent uh, childhood between there and uh, Boston, Massachusetts, where I did high school. I did undergrad, starting at Syracuse and finishing at Carnegie Mellon. I uh, lived in D.C., worked there for a few years, went over to grad school in Los Angeles. And after that, started at UGOP, and here we are. That is a uh, quick glossing over of uh, the beginnings of a nice career. What was the high school in Massachusetts that took you? So we moved from my mom's job. So I was, uh, I was in Louisville for kind of... Uh, life up until that point, And then we moved over and I uh, did high school over in Worcester, Massachusetts. Yeah. Were you a political family? Were you on that road already? Yeah. So it was definitely the kind of household where, you know, the newspaper uh, was, was read through pretty thoroughly by the whole family every day. The TV was, was always on. I certainly grew up uh, with a set of parents who Sort of encouraged paying attention to the world around you from from that, that that perspective. If you try to think back to to high school, the first election that I voted in in Massachusetts was it was like a municipal bond election uh, uh, vote for the town that we lived in, and I was the sort of crazy person frantically calling to find somebody who had a car that I could use to get down to the middle school to cast my vote for this stupid little little bond thing on a rainy Tuesday. So hopefully that gives some 
perspective on how I, how I grew up. Yeah. Well, what's the story with starting at Syracuse and going on to Carnegie Mellon? Yeah. So when I was in high school, my high school job was I worked at the local TV station at the cable access station, lugging around cameras and taping the city council meetings and all that fun stuff. And what I would euphemistically call the pay included uh, the ability to occasionally, uh, quote unquote, borrow some of the equipment from that, from that station uh, to run around and make movies with my friends, because uh, I actually began life as a film major. And I went to uh, the film and TV program at Syracuse, uh, sort of assuming what uh, that's what I was going to be uh, going to be doing. And, uh, and, and so in Syracuse, you know, I spent, I spent a year sort of doing that, being involved with the college dams. Uh, and I sort of came to realize while I was there, you know, I don't, I don't really know if this is for me. I'm not sure if you've ever spent a winter in upstate New York. Uh, but if you, if you have, you can maybe, maybe empathize, even though I had lived in Massachusetts, I found it to be a little much. And so, um, after my first year, uh, I, I actually, had this funny experience for for a sort of artsy fartsy film snob type of kid where I uh, basically I picked up it must have been maybe it was a Sasha Eisenberg article or it was some sort of article about sort of data and politics which back back then was kind of a novel concept and I really fell in love with it and I thought well maybe I would rather do that instead I you know sort of always figured you know if I end up doing the film thing for a living, it would be to sort of make political documentaries. And then I read this stuff instead. And I thought, well, maybe I would enjoy sort of the sort of spreadsheet jockeying a little bit more. And so after my first year, I actually transferred to Carnegie Mellon, which is in beautiful Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, one of my favorite cities in the whole country, where I, uh, I finished school, uh, did a somewhat dramatic flip from film over to statistics, uh, public policy, really, really fell in love with that stuff. I didn't have a head for math at all in high school. I barely made it through any of that stuff when I was younger, but for some reason it kind of clicked as I got a little bit older and I really fell in love with it. And that's sort of what I, what I ended up doing. And Carnegie Mellon is, is like a great school for that combination of applied math for the tools that, that are used in that. It has a good public policy, has good statistics, all of that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah, it, uh, the the Heinz School there has uh, uh, has a pretty pretty good good re- reputation, uh, and Pittsburgh is also a really fascinating place to to uh, kind of get your feet wet in politics. Uh, you know, back in back in those days, uh, it was you know in a lot of ways it was kind of ground zero for a lot of what was happening in politics at, at the time in Pennsylvania. Was a little bit involved with college Dem stuff there. Worked on a couple of campaigns. Um, you know, right when I was finishing undergrad. Uh, I kind of I have the story where I kind of tried to work for Joe Sestak's Senate campaign. I don't know if anybody remembers that that ever happened, uh, but uh, I try I did did my best to try to work for them. Called and applied for an internship. Um, had an interview with them. Uh, they said that I could come down to the office. They gave me the wrong address for the office. I showed up to the office. Tried to call to get the correct address. No one picked up. And I think that's probably a pretty good metaphor for how some campaigns go. Uh, but otherwise had a pretty, had a good, had a good, a good experience. Uh, love Pittsburgh, um, had been planning to return to visit for my, uh, 10 year reunion until all this happened. Uh, but otherwise try to be a frequent, re- uh, return visitor. Did you find the weather significantly better than Syracuse? 
for sure. Although it's it's going to be uh, going to be hard to hard to find a place where that's that's not the case. Syracuse has many many positive things about it. Uh, the parts that uh, God is responsible for not being up there among them. You said you spent some time in D.C. What was the path after college? Yeah. So as I was graduating undergrad, this was about 2010. So we're still kind of, so that means I'm sort of applying for jobs in the winter of 2009. We're still kind of in the sort of doldrums of the recession. And so I was really kind of furiously applying to uh, everything possible. And anytime something bit, I, I would I would basically jump for it because um, jobs were a little bit hard to come by at that point. Uh, senior year was kind of rapidly barreling to a close. I Hadn't quite secured a gig yet, much to my uh, perpetual anxiety. This might have been like a month before I graduated. Uh, I had a conversation with a now longtime friend of mine, Andrew Mercer, for a a small Democratic pollster called Myers Research, uh, named after Andrew Myers, uh, sadly the uh, recently recently deceased Andrew Myers, who I know many of your many of your listeners know and have probably probably worked with in the past. I had a conversation with them. They invited me down to D.C. for an in-person interview. Uh, I literally skipped a final exam to hop on a Greyhound bus to go take that interview. Wow. But I talked to the, to the folks there. They were like, what's the matter with you? Why would you do this? Like, this, if you told <laughs> us this. Now we're not hiring you if you have no judgment. <laughs> if, you, if, if, if you told us this this what you were doing, we would have just done that over, over the telephone. Back in those days, uh, you wanted to do enough to kind of impress yourself upon a potential employer that uh, – Made it down there, did the interview, things went well. And so my first job in politics uh, was for Myers Research, which was uh, nominally based in D.C. So I figured I'd better find myself a place to live down there. And of course, when I showed up, I quickly learned that uh, the job would be mostly remote and that I had moved to uh, D.C. for uh, no actual reason and was now trying to live in D.C. on an entry-level employee salary. Uh, but such is, such is life, and I'm definitely glad that I, I, I made it there in the first place. Yeah. Did you uh, enjoy that job? Yeah, this was a great job. So my experience was, you know, you graduate. This is my first kind of grown-up job. When I was at Carnegie Mellon, my my job was, you know, I, um, I I stock candy machines to help pay the rent. Over the summer, I would do, you know, odd internships. Um, first first job at, at Myers Research was really was really fascinating. Uh, there's a, a few things to, to to know about to know about that that company is. Uh, at that time, their focus was really on uh, a lot of like a lot of their client base was they were sort of Democrats who were in the the Midwest who were running uh, in the sort of 2010 uh, political cycle, which, as I'm sure we all remember, was just a jolly time to be a Democrat in the Midwest. I had a lot of clients who were, uh, in addition to state level, a lot who were local candidates as well. So state house, state senate. Some governors and state candidates as well, but a lot of a lot of local races. And so I think understanding the sort of things that they were that they were running on at the time, I think was was really uh, insightful from the perspective of kind of what we were up against back in 2010. You know, we had a lot of candidates who we were working for whose messaging was, you know, uh, I am a Democrat, but boy, I sure do hate that Barack Obama guy, and I promise I'm not one of those other. Democrats that uh, you may have heard about on the TVs uh, and all that, all that really fun, moralizing, uh, totally, totally effective stuff that definitely ended up working out just fine for them in the end. That was actually my first um, introduction to the world of uh, uh, polling. And I think what's really interesting about that is I'm just getting kind of a, my first kind of feeling of really the vicissitudes of the political cycle, how hectic things get for a few months and then how quiet they get kind of after that period. 
uh, getting to understand sort of what it means to do messaging, what it means to develop a message, how running for office in Ohio, Colorado, Florida, Pennsylvania, all kind of differ from each other. Um, and just kind of the, 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 the fun little world that is the sort of DC progressive space. You seem, I guess, quite reasonably skeptical of the defensive messaging by Democrats that cycle that that was not in line with the president. And, and it's a cycle where we got killed. Was your firm advising that kind of stance in defense of its candidates? Were you involved in that? How, how did you see that at the time? Yeah. So in my first gig, I was, I was just, a, a, a you know, analyst one. So I was not exactly, I was not exa- exactly uh, privy to those in-depth messaging conversations. Uh, but at the time, I think there was a general sense that, you know, as I'm sure you recall, you know, any, any Democrat running in uh, the Midwestern area probably felt a, a sort of defensive instinct just by nature of how quickly the Tea Party sort of came to exist uh, after uh, Obama's inauguration. And I think, you know, to the extent that I was involved in it, which was which was kind of small, I think back in those days, I definitely understood it. A lot of our results seem to suggest that it's going to be a tough year, no matter no matter what you say. You know, maybe for this or that candidate, if you can sort of articulate your sort of independent, you know, your sort of personal brand well, maybe this stuff is good. Otherwise, it, there's not that much evidence for it. How real is this Tea Party thing? Oh my God, it's incredibly real. We all need to sort of run with our hair on fire for a few months to see what happens. Back in those days, it was definitely the sort of uh, modal modal takeaway from messaging at, at the at the time was a lot of candidates. Uh, were advised to sort of back off from the president. Essentially, um, I've you know maybe we can get to this get to this later. We talk about what's sort of happening recently. Um, I mean, because it feels like this is twenty twenty two is like the same thing at this point, or has the potential to be very analogous, right? Yeah. So it does seem like we're uh, you know shall we say heading into a cycle with some headwinds facing us. What was next for you after Myers? Sure. So, so after Myers, after that election cycle finished up, I was sort of looking for something else to do, and uh, the, a job opened up at the DNC uh, that was for uh, working on the redistricting team. This was interesting because it's not exactly a job that comes around very often, right? Sort of by by definition, you know, the, it sort of comes to exist once every ten years. Uh, it exists for two years and then it kind of, uh, kind of, kind of goes away. And up until that point, with Apologies to uh, to my friend Seth who hired me there. I knew nothing about the subject before I walked into the room, but I had a good, good conversation with the folks at the DNC and ended up starting there pretty shortly after uh, the end of the 2010 election cycle. And so, at first, the job of redistricting sort of started out as just this kind of sandbox of you know here's the census data, here's a bunch of shape files. Here's our voter file. You know, here are the places where maybe we can draw some maps. You know, go nuts. One consequence of what I was just talking about was that um, our areas for opportunity were extremely small after 2010. And so, when it came to actually uh, drawing maps, a lot of what we were doing was coming up with things like counterfactual scenarios for maps that Republicans would be proposing. So the idea would be, you know, if we're going to litigate a map in some state. Uh, we, you know, we're, we're, are we able to produce a scenario that's, you know, more equitable, that's more protective of the voting power of black communities and Latino communities. And that was sort of a lot of what I was doing there. 
the DNC is a really interesting place. Uh, I really uh, was happy for my happy for my for my time there, but it was definitely a job that had uh, kind of a finite timeline on it. And so I was there handling that stuff for a couple of years towards the very tail end of that cycle, which would have been the 2012 cycle. Once my sort of work for that had kind of essentially dried up, right? Um, I actually ended up the last few months of 2012 basically working for the Obama re-election campaign uh, with the media analytics team, which involved kind of you know living back and forth between DC and Chicago for 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 a few months. I just want to ask you one question on the redistricting front, which is there used to be a school of thought that practitioners overestimated how powerful redistricting was over time, that because of the changes in the electorate, a lot of the attempts to gerrymander favorably to a party diminished over time. If you listen to conversations, particularly on the left right now, the conventional wisdom really seems to be, we're really going to be locked out in bunches of states both in the congressional delegation and in the state legislature by virtue of really successful gerrymanders by the other side. Do you have any opinion on that front at this point? Yeah. So one of the the, the learning experience that I, that I had there was I sort of walked into this job thinking that what we were doing was essentially a technical exercise. My impression of the task of, of redistricting was to sort of you know, optimize a map in some sense, and you're optimizing with respect to election outcomes. How many of these districts can I push over 50% plus one Democratic performance index, essentially, was what I, I thought the task was. And what I sort of came to learn over the work that we did with, you know, the state parties, uh, with our incumbents, was that most of the places where we had the ability to draw maps more so than expanding or what have you, uh, any like the, the sort of raw kind of party advantage, right? Above and beyond the sort of idea of expanding how many seats could we win, the most important prerogative uh, was making incumbents happy. Uh, there were states where you could, in theory, maybe you could draw, you know, these two Republican incumbents into the same district, but this Democrat wouldn't like it because, oh, this is their favorite neighborhood and they have this belief that everyone in this neighborhood, these are their core constituents. You know, you know, I I have to have the fishermen from this town. I have to have, you know, the 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 main street of this town is where I had my first event. You know, we have to have to have this in this neighborhood. Um, which I think, you know, again, that's that's gonna be the view of a sort of uh, longstanding incumbent politician. And I think that's it's perfectly reasonable to expect someone to develop opinions like that. But I think what that means is that we don't really live in a world, and I think this is true of either side, and I believe it's true today, where neither side really has the kind of free reign to sort of uh, fully rat fuck the system to the capacity that a purely technical person might desire, just because the constraints are sort of uh, are a bit more sort of uh, complex than they than they might think. Which just which just means, in the first place, um, even the worst gerrymanders that you see. I don't know if this is any comfort to anybody, but they're not as bad as they could have been in pretty much every 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 case. But yeah, I, know, I think I think it is probably overstated that redistricting itself has the ability to sort of lock any party out of power all by all by all by itself. Um, it certainly, if done sufficiently uh, aggressively, can produce advantages at the margin. But the actual process 
isn't necessarily designed to do that in every case. A lot of it is about making your incumbents happy because they want this or that little little thing. Interesting take and probably more sort of the political science take than the political world as they currently view it. You, you decided to go to, to UCLA and do grad school in this field, right? About this time. How was that? Yeah. So once I kind of figured that this redistricting thing was was coming to an end, I figured what was going to be next. And when I was involved in um, all this stuff at the, at, the, at the DNC, there were a lot of folks kind of thinking about, well, okay, after the cycle, maybe I'll you know go to grad school. I kind of started thinking, well, maybe I'll do that as well. Applied to a bunch of schools. UCLA was the highest ranked one that I got into. I had never lived on the West Coast. I didn't have much of a mental model of the West Coast. I knew that it was a place that people lived, but it was not a place where I um, had really spent any significant amount of time. But I figured, well, why not? This is the one that I that I got into. So uh, as the campaign kind of wound down, I packed up all my stuff, which fortunately at that age was uh, very, very little. Uh, all of my life possessions at that point fit into the back of an ancient Toyota Corolla that somehow miraculously uh, survived this drive. And uh, I drove it across the country, um, which was a uh, wonderful kind of three-week vacation I gave myself to make my way across, arrived in Los Angeles. Uh, and so... Once I was there, uh, you know, grad school is what it is. Uh, while, so so while, while, I, while I was there, uh, I did kind of use my redistricting experience to sort of develop a consulting practice. I worked with a lot of folks who were continuing litigation over redistricting for their first years of grad school to kind of help pay the bills. Um, grad school by itself does not do that for you, um, especially if you live in Los Angeles. So I spent a lot of that time essentially still with one foot in the practitioner's world, um, even as I was sort of uh, more involved in the academic side. But even as I was doing this, I sort of had in the back of my head that I was going to return to practice once the whole grad school thing thing was done. Um, the wrinkle that I encountered was that I, I really fell in love with teaching. Teaching was far and away my favorite part of the grad school experience. Uh, I'm so I'm so proud of all, of all my kids who ended up doing doing well in UCLA's poli sci department, uh, and there are, there are there are many. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I saw one of my uh, former star students got into Yale Law School. Um, I will not embarrass him by name, but um, stuff like that um, really kind of kind of kept me going through a process that I otherwise showed up uh, and realized that I didn't uh, didn't quite enjoy as much as um, I thought I was going to. Were you in a doctoral program and and left with a master's sort of thing? Yeah, so this was, a, yeah, so it was a it was a PhD program. Uh, I got a master's after a couple of years, uh, stuck with it um, for a few more years. So at this point, uh, I'm actually, so on paper right now at UCLA, uh, if my committee chairs are listening, sorry, Chris and Jeff, I promise I will finish at some point, uh, but I'm currently what is known as ABD, uh, which just means I have to uh, finish the dissertation. But as with many people, uh, I was sort of stuck in grad school doing this thing on the night, uh, the fateful November night in 2016, um, the night where I kind of realized, you know, what, what the fuck am I doing here? It's time to uh, time to go ahead and get out of here. So, so basically, 2016 happens. The fateful night in November happens. I'm still hungover for several days after that, and then I basically kind of get up and seek to get back into actual politics. You said your committee, Chris and Jeff, 
that wouldn't be Jeff Lewis, would it? It sure would. So Jeff Lewis was my office mate at MIT in grad oh, school. Oh, goodness. I'm a ABD, more or less, <laughs> from there, having left to start a political <laughs> tech firm. So I feel some some kinship to you and some connection through Jeff, who is a lovely person. Indeed. You think you'll finish that dissertation? I've never uh, returned to it. By far the most, the, the rudest question I've ever been asked in a recording. <laughs> <laughs> My wife and I are both in that category and we're in our mid to late 50s. So the, the odds are shrinking. Uh, well, okay. So there, so there actually the crucial difference for me is that uh, my, my fiance, who is smarter than me in every way, I did finish her degree. I uh, did finish her, her, her PhD. We, we, we met at UCLA. She's, she's a couple of years younger than me, finished before I did, uh, and is, uh, is now a, a, a postdoc at UT Austin, which is where we're out here. So, uh, so maybe I have a, a source of, uh, uh, shall we say, external incentive that, uh, that, that you, you, you may not. I've read that for something over 50% of people who complete their dissertation, it's their last academic work. So it's like, even if you get through that, the odds that you proceed to an academic career, which is generally the biggest reason to get that PhD, are not high. But if you want to teach, it's a wonderful credential and one that you'll probably finish up if that's the motivation, I assume. Yeah, I mean, possibly. I think, I think, I think teaching teaching would be would be the, the reason to be honest. And of course, as I'm sure you recall from your from your grad school days, the fun thing about teaching is that in academia, it's widely regarded as a punishment for sucking at applying for grants. <laughs> that's why why you're teaching in the first place because you couldn't get you couldn't get paid to do something else instead so if that was the rudest question i could have asked you <laughs> what would be the second rudest <laughs> <laughs> i think i could have topped it actually but um i appreciate you taking it with grace how did you land at yougov you know yougov is interesting to me i um i've talked to doug rivers started polymetrics right which was acquired by yougov and is a is there. And I've talked to Alyssa Stolwerk, um, who is a VP in the YouGov blue part. How have you found it as a, as an entity to, to join and what, what's been your path there? Yeah. So it's been, it's been really, really fascinating. So when I started there, I was the first senior hire for Alyssa and she was kind of just getting the team started it was literally the first round of, of applications. And we had a, a really good report kind of from the start. Uh, I was already in DC. So the sort of reason for that is UCLA happens to have an extension campus in Washington, DC, because, you know, why wouldn't they? Totally makes sense for UCLA to uh, have a Washington, DC building. Uh, nothing great <laughs> right about that at all. There's a lot of Washington buildings for colleges around the country. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> I was there teaching kind of a research methods course for students who wanted to go have an internship in D.C. for a, for a little while. UCLA kind of makes that tricky because they're on the quarter system. So they're there for all of like 12 or 13 weeks. So it's like, what the hell are you going to do in that time? When my kids showed up there, I told them to like, to the extent possible, just cut class and go to happy hours and network and build your uh, Rolodex that way. And they were like, what's a Rolodex, old man? Uh, but so I was sort of already already in DC where we were opening an office. Um, started there, Lord, I guess would have been summer, late summer of 2017 as a senior hire. It's been great. I got there early enough where we didn't have to jump right into kind of the craziness of the 2018 cycle, um, which was really, really hectic. But in the sort of year before then, we had time to sort of build out our, our, our client base. 
uh, build out the kind of work that we were doing, kind of figure out what the team was going to look like. Because again, UConn Blue was a brand new team at that at that point. It was me, Alyssa, uh, and another one of our extremely smart senior analysts now, Jack, building it out from from scratch. And uh, I, I just remember showing up there, and uh, I sort of sat down to kind of get acquainted with our systems. And we have this kind of like internal kind of scripting language that we program our surveys in and are sitting down and looking at it. And it sure looked an awful lot like what I had used kind of code surveys back in Myers research. And I was like, boy, the last 10 years sure amounted to a lot, didn't they? (laughs) (laughs) Just sort of seeing that like, oh, well, here we are again. It's been great since then. The team has grown to six. We're currently in the the middle of hiring. Uh, So if I seem uh, even less combobulated than than usual, that's, that's, that's part of it. You seem exactly as combobulated as I've ever seen you. There we go. Sample, sample, sample sizes here with an asymptotic uh, standard error. Yeah. Have you run into a, a Joe Williams? Yes. Yep. Joe works in the team next door. Um, Joe graciously coached me through um, my early days at YouGov. Uh, I would not have survived without him. If you haven't talked to him yet, he obviously is a fascinating guy. I should catch up with him. He worked for me for a summer. I have a something called Time Plots, some posters that visualize politics, and he helped me work on the Supreme Court poster and some oh, other fantastic. things back in the day. So I know Joe. I should get him on the podcast. I'm sure he's full of information. The reason you came to my attention was through J.D. Scholten, who I recently interviewed, who told me that you had done uh, some rural polling that he thought was quite noteworthy. And I've been recently interviewing a number of people who are working on the the rural problem from the progressive point of view. And I, I wanted to hear from you how you came to undertake that and what you learned. Sure. So uh, prior to meeting JD, I'd done some work with another guy, Matt Hildreth, who if you haven't talked to, you should as well. We're just talking now about scheduling. And oh, I mean, I mean, yeah, he's, he's a great guy. And uh, we did a little bit of kind of um, battleground horse race polling of rural voters for him. Previously, he introduced me to JD, who was really who really kind of takes – this problem seriously. I'm sure kind of talking to him, you got the sense that he's really interested in kind of the hard questions about what are Democrats going to do in rural, in rural America. Um, we had a good conversation and it seemed like uh, for the kind of the, the depth of the project that he, that he wanted to do, I knew it was going to be pretty involved. But, you know, again, having kind of cut my teeth on a world of um, working for candidates running these kind of rural Midwestern districts, to me, this project really kind of spoke to me. Uh, and so we, we put together this uh, kind of lo- this, this sort of large scale project that focuses on uh, rural voters living in 2022 battleground states. Uh, uh, so you're thinking, you know, Ohio, Wisconsin, Iowa, um, South Carolina, and, uh, and, and so on. And we basically wanted to get at, you know, as much information as we could possibly get on the nature of the challenge that Democrats face in rural areas. So we asked about everything from, you know, public policy stuff to kind of reads on, how the party is doing, uh, reads on disinformation, some candidate stuff. Um, and we sort of, I'm not going to bury, bury the lead here, uh, the challenges the Democrats face in rural areas are pretty significant. Uh, just to kind of set the, set the stage for that, uh, one of the message tests that we ran on this survey was we basically thought, let's ask rural voters to choose between, you know, the the best possible candidate for them and the worst possible candidate for them. So first, you know, we showed voters, here's candidate A. He grew up in 
know, insert your home state. Uh, the most important things to him are his Christian faith, uh, his uh, belief in responsible gun ownership, and his desire to protect economic way of life for his for his constituents. Candidate B grew up in an East Coast city. Uh, he's a wealthy businessman who finances his own campaign. And his most important issue uh, is tax cuts for the rich. Okay, so uh, and so we sort of asked for all voters. Okay, of these two, of these two, who are you going to prefer? And uh, the fellow rural Christian gun owner uh, in that condition uh, basically won by you know plus thirty four percentage points. And then in a separate version of the same message. The only thing that we changed uh, was that candidate A was the Democrat and that candidate B was the Republican. And our candidate A goes from winning by plus 34 to losing by one. And so that's a 35 percentage point difference just by having the party ID next to your name, which I think kind of uh, helps set the stage for what we were dealing with. Stop me as my overcaffeinated rambling goes on for, for too long, but uh, at the same time, we included a bunch of policy stuff that ended up making it into the Build Back Better agenda uh, to sort of get a read on that stuff. And the good news was that rural voters in these battleground states really love the Democratic agenda. You know, they love programs to expand rural broadband. They love programs to get lead pipes out of the water infrastructure. They love fixing up the roads and the highways. The downside is that they think that's what Republicans are doing. After asking voters about all these policies, we basically asked them, okay, which party do you attribute these policies to? The best part of this, of course, was that for, you know, particularly uh, independent voters uh, above and beyond kind of expectation, were more likely to attribute those policies to Republicans than to Democrats. They basically thought of Democrats as uh, they care about, you know, people who are fighting the culture war. They care about people who live on the coast. They care about uh, that sort of stuff, whereas Republicans... They're the ones fighting for all these policies. They would name, they name those policies explicitly. They're the ones fighting for the economy. So uh, our agenda sure is good. It would just be great if uh, these voters knew that's what our agenda was. Is this something we can dig out from? So my take on it is that a lot of people look at rural voters and they look at kind of the partisan split and they figure, well, it's been fun, folks. Let's take our take our money our money elsewhere. And I think the more the more important story. Uh, is that in addition to finding kind of this sort of partisan advantage for Republicans for, and, uh, among rural voters is definitely definitely a, a real thing. But below the surface of that, I think there's also this important story about the sheer feeling of kind of disenfranchisement among rural voters. And if you spend much time out in, in rural communities, this probably doesn't sound too unfamiliar. Uh, but as much as you know, those who are actively taking part in the system, there are a lot of rural voters. Depending on how you measure it, you know, you could say, you know, are these voters who they distrust both the Democrats and the Republicans, they distrust the Democrats and Trump, they distrust Biden and Trump, they vote infrequently, their vote kind of flip flops back and forth in a sort of haphazard fashion. However you define it, in that same survey, we found that somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of these rural voters were in some sense low trust, low trust in the system. Okay, and if you sort of look at the share of those voters who are, you know, in some sense persuadable, maybe their vote changed over the past few cycles, maybe their favorability of Democrats isn't so bad, 
however however you measure it. Um, I think there's an important lesson for Democrats here uh, in that those voters um, are, are definitely reachable, but not necessarily reachable in the ways that we normally seek to reach them. So, you know, again, may not be too surprising to you, but I think something that's important to think about uh, is the fact that these sort of lower trust voters, one, there are a few issues where the Democratic position is definitely more popular for them than for other voters. So, for example, they're uh, much more into legalized marijuana, raising the minimum wage, things like that. They're also, you know, they're not looking for political opinions uh, where uh, many campaigns or advisors are normally suggesting those opinions be placed. Okay, so these are voters who aren't necessarily... They're not watching CNN, they're certainly not watching MSNBC, but they're also not watching Fox News. And one important important takeaway is that the nature of the kind of Fox News effect among rural voters um, is overstated, at least for those who are in some sense gettable. Uh, they're much more likely to be found in kind of what I call these sort of like novel digital spaces. They hang out on Reddit. Uh, they keep Discord open while they're playing video games. Uh, they're watching games on Twitch. Uh, they're watching Let's Plays on YouTube. YouTube, of course, as many of us know, is increasingly an important news and search vector place to hang out on the internet. There's a lesson there for practitioners in uh, how how to how to reach these folks in a way that goes beyond kind of um, ads on television that is already mostly being watched by informed partisans. I talked recently to Sarah Janes, who also is in the rural progressive space, I guess. She said to me that rural voters are one of the swingiest of groups in the country. And that I hadn't hadn't come to my attention before. Does that agree with your data or your observation? Yeah. So I so it's not, you know, it's not sort of a hundred zero compared to the national electorate, but we do find that uh, at least the sort of propensity to sort of change which party you vote for, you know, what does that have to do with, with underlying attitude change? That's, that's a little bit of a squishier question, but it is, it is certainly true that, you know, from, from, you know, 16, 18, 20, uh, we do observe a little, a little bit more vote switching among rural voters than among like kind of a national population. And I think, I think a lot of that probably ties into sort of what I was saying with this sort of sense that voters in rural areas again, compared to a national electorate are, at least to my eyes, kind of uh, uniquely sort of um, despondent towards the system or feel disaffected from the system would be sort of my 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 theory for why that is the case. Um, it's not that they sort of adopt a diehard partisan attachment to a different party every couple of years. It's that they don't really give a shit about things. Their hill is less is less deep, so to, so to, so to, so to speak. What surprised you most about what you found? Yeah, so I spent most of my days I have lived in, you know, in more urban areas. I think I was certainly surprised by the fact that rural voters, they they watch a little more Fox News. They don't watch a ton more Fox News. They don't watch any more One America News Network. Uh, network. They don't hang out on parlor any more than other voters. And that, the number is basically zero at this point, but you sort of get, get what, what, what I'm saying. And I think it's important to understand that like for a lot of practitioners, I think people kind of live in their heads 
with this sort of particular label associated with them that is a shortcut for kind of appreciating kind of the margins. So if I'm a rural voter, you know, a lot of people have a stereotype of a rural voter. I certainly have had that stereotype. Um, It doesn't quite line up with with the facts. They're a little bit more on Fox News, not a lot more on Fox News. Their concerns sort of sort of push them on one of the things that they actually are worried about. They're a little bit more worried about agribusiness issues. They're not a lot more worried about that stuff. They're they're about as concerned as voters are elsewhere with, you know, the rising cost of housing, the rising cost of education, the rising cost of caring for seniors. They're not totally dissimilar from the rest of the country. And I think that's uh, at least back when sort of starting this project, you know, by now we've sort of been through it quite a quite a quite a bit. Uh, but I think I think just sort of keeping keeping that 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 in mind. But a lot of these differences that I think practitioners sometimes talk about as 100-0 are really more like 60-40 or 55-45. I know you guys maintain a big panel and the ability, therefore, to go back to the same person and track attitude change over time. Was this rural survey over the top of a panel or was it a separate reaching out to the electorate? Yeah. So so the one that we're talking about right now, this was a sort of one-off project, but our, our 2022 plans are still kind of in formulation. So. so there may be the ability to do that on a panel. Yeah. yeah. Given the 2022 is coming up and we started to go down this road earlier in the conversation, what are you seeing? I mean, I, I hate asking people to prognosticate because it's not worth that much, I don't think, but uh, there are patterns and there are things that can be observed at this point. What What do you see? There's probably a paradox for Democrats at the moment where you, I'm not an economist, but you know, whatever's going on with the sort of perceived supply chain inflation issues, ongoing kind of general malaise over the pandemic uh, are essentially leading to persistent malaise towards the people in power. I don't think that should, that should surprise anyone. In fact, I really kind of, um, I discourage people from sort of overreacting to to that stuff. Things still kind of suck out there in a broad sense. That shouldn't be surprising that people don't feel super positively towards the uh, political system or, or those currently in charge of it. Um, and I felt the same way for Trump. And actually, um, I think some people, you know, I think there's this take out there that 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 the pandemic cost Trump the presidency. I think that's wrong. I think that's that's probably probably over overstated, but at the, but at the same time, you know, as long as you know economic conditions are still kind of in the doldrums, I think we should sort of expect approval of people to be bad kind of across across the board. Um, and so I think you know the, the the takeaway from that is that I don't think people should overreact to the fact that you know. President Biden passes all this great legislation and there isn't a large and persistent bounce 20 minutes later. You know, I don't I don't I don't really think that's how uh, that's how attitudes work. Um, I think we're heading into a unique midterm context because we don't quite know what kind of uh, insanity the current Supreme Court is going to foist upon the electorate. We don't really have a sense of what happens to the electorate if the Supreme Court, if they either overturn or gut Roe versus Wade. We don't know what's going to happen if our sort of social stress level is pushed into the you know fourth year of a pandemic. We don't know what that's going to do for people. So this is all kind of a, a lot of upholsters saying don't react to poll numbers, which is which is maybe a little bit counter counterintuitive. But I think heading into 2022, there's going to be a lot of attempts to sort of 
have takes around the day to day as there always are. And the bottom line is that, you know, if the state of the economy stays the same that it, that it is, it shouldn't surprise anybody that that everyone's numbers are where they are currently. And that therefore Democrats get shellacked. Precisely. Yeah. I guess I feel that that in my bones. What else are you up to that you'd like to highlight? Yeah. So going into 2022, in addition to, you know, thinking a lot about the midterms, there are a lot of projects that I'm working on where uh, we're thinking about opportunities Democrats have to make a difference at the state and local level, which I think is a really, really important sphere of politics. You know, again, I grew up taping city council meetings. I, I, I sort of understood from an early age that, you know, you sort of want to make a difference where, where, you, where you can. And, you know, for example, there's some organizations that we work with, Campaign Zero, that are doing a lot of work asking really hard questions around understanding how Democrats message on and concretely advance issues around, around criminal justice reform, which of course has been one of the most difficult topics that we've faced in recent years. And there's been a sort of lot of Twitter navel-gazing around that subject. Um, but with Campaign Zero, we've been you know, actively running surveys You know, at this point been in over you know, over a dozen cities. We've been in all 50 states. We've run several national projects trying to get a sense of how to sort of understand people's attitudes for criminal justice reform, what to do given that Republican messaging is going to focus heavily on, uh, on crime and perceptions of crime and all that stuff. Um, and I think that work has been really important, really eye-opening for me as well, uh, because we've done a lot of work to throw, understand how ordinary voters think about these sort of really important issues that have sort of clear racial justice implications. Uh, and so I think sort of gearing ourselves up for that, not only to sort of be defensive against what we know is going to come out of um, Republicans and Mouths next cycle, but also to be able to actually actively advance an agenda. So, you know, kind of quiet, quietly, as, as everything has been going on, there have been actual concrete reforms to policing in states like Michigan, Maryland, uh, cities across the South have made efforts to actually, uh, in some sense, reform criminal justice. Um, and I think our work in that area has been particularly important to me. Sounds like an interesting job. So far, so far, never a dull moment. I was just talking to Alyssa about this. Typically in an, in a, in an election cycle, you know, November happens and then everything goes goes quiet for a few months, especially if you're working campaign campaign land. You know, November happens and your you your you know, your your job goes goes to zero. And so in twenty twenty we were kind of thinking, you know, you know, fucking Christ, this is a lot, you know, but at least November is gonna come around and the election's gonna happen and whatever happens, we're all gonna get a couple of months off. And of course, as you know it, the November election goes on for a month and a half, uh, and then we're back in January, and it's suddenly Congress is in session, all the state legislatures are in session, the city councils are all in session, time to get back to work. We're certainly feeling something similar this time around. You know, we're already kind of gearing up for 2022. You know, the battleground work has begun, uh, and so we are definitely keeping busy. Do you run into, like, I don't know, we channel conflict with providing data to pollsters as well as now acting as one through the YouGov blue? Yeah, good question. So you mean in terms of like communicating the data to the public? If YouGov is a source of tools and data to pollsters, if I understand right, and YouGov blue is kind of a competitor to some of these pollsters, right, through your work. Does that cause any issues? Oh, I see. Um, well, you know, I think 
we, you know, we, we basically do, do everything as people kind of need us, need us to do them. So there are a lot of cases where, you know, we're a panel provider and you're coming to YouGov Blue because we're the team where everyone's based in the U.S. and it makes the FEC pilot, you know, paperwork the easiest and, and all, all that stuff. Um, and of course, there are other cases where we work with, um, with folks basically from, from end to end and every, everything up through the analysis that like a, a traditional analytics firm would, would, be, would be doing. But like I said, we kind of try and, try and do everything. We also are sort of mindful of like uh, the folks that we work with. Some people want to need everything. Some people just need panel. Uh, we we try we try and be be as good about that as as, as as possible. Is there a question I haven't asked you that I should have? Well, you said that you were hesitant to ask people about prognosticating, and I was kind of expecting a question about where are all the shy Trump voters in surveys. It's always a delight to not be asked that, but here we are. One of the things that 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 your listeners should be super mindful of uh, going into 2022 is that the challenge of ensuring, you know, proper panel composition uh, is one that um, you know all serious pollsters are taking very seriously this time around, and is something that we kind of keep sort of experimenting with and trying to get right. But you know, that said, if anybody maybe like you or I is having having trouble sleeping over polling results uh, between here and the next year, just just bear in mind that we are doing our best, but um, to also this far out, you have my permission as a pollster uh, to take any horse race polling with a with a large grain of salt at this point. I mean, it has been notable how hard it has been to guess how much how many Trump voters would turn out. We've been, as a country, surprised by the heavy turnout Virginia race just happening, the twenty twenty Senate races that didn't go the way it seemed the closeness of the Biden-Trump race in the Electoral College, many other things like that. Do you have a general take on what underlies that? Yeah. So for for me, a lot of that kind of, we started noticing it in 2018, where the nature of the electorate was quite different from what you would expect from a set of, of 2016 quotas, which just means the turnout was was so much higher that in, in 2018 than you would expect for a midterm election. The Democrats pretty comfortably beat their polling as well. And I think that sort of forced me to realize that, oh, the temperature is so high that we should expect turnout to basically go up. And the, you know, you know, basically sort of one story around that is that is that after 2018, I was sort of ready to kind of relax our likely voter screens a little bit just because we should entertain the possibility that there are going to be more voters than we expected, as ended up happening in, in, in 2020. Typically we expect that to swing against the party of the president in a midterm, but we might be in a world where, you know, if Roe is overturned, all of a sudden, you know, Republicans could be facing a women's march electorate. And we just we just don't 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 know going into it. But I think pollsters, practitioners, academics should all be prepared for a world where the denominator, so to speak, the electorate, uh, is very, very different even than when it was in 2020. It occurs to me that that decision makers political decision makers might think that Roe is going to drive the electorate, and I'm certain it will in certain cases, but that there's a lot of evidence that there's a lot of important electorate that's not so interested in social issues, even ones at that level, and that if messaging gets really focused by Democrats on something like choice, they're going to think we're not that interested in the economy and their job, which often trumps 
these social issues at the end of the day. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's 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 a good point, and it's it's important to remember. You know, one from many from many perspectives, abortion, of course, is an economic issue, but also I think you know it doesn't it doesn't have to sort of be the direct issue itself that leads to sort of a change in the composition of the electorate, because you could imagine a world where something really dramatic happens. In some cases, what that might do is you know motivate people to you know change who they were going to vote for, but in other cases, maybe they don't care about the issue itself, but this thing happens and it gets. Uh, kind of the activists on one side really energized to get involved again. All of a sudden, we're in a world where the nature of uh, fundraising looks really different, where the kind of the messaging uh, that candidates have to develop is is dramatically altered. And so things are in some sense shaken up, as I think they they would be if something terrible like that ended up ended up happening. Not necessarily drawing a line straight from a court decision to an election outcome, but court decision to all of a sudden our electoral dynamics are really, really different. And I think that that just leads us to have to live in a world where we should be prepared for surprises over the summer. Yeah, I think. And one could also imagine that it motivates the support of the people who finally got Roe overturned in their view. There's very rarely no opposite reaction to anything. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's important to remember that in politics, you know, the, the, the vote choice falls out of a very, very large chain of events. And if you send a shockwave through this part of the chain, it's going to sort of reverberate out through the system in ways that, yeah, it's, it's, it's not clear cut in either side's uh, direction, but it's, it at least, you know, will, will require, I would say, fairly, fairly major kind of communications realignment on both sides. Yeah. Well, Fun to talk to you. Uh, anything else you want to say? Uh, I think that's. I think that's about it. I didn't have. Uh, I think I said anything. Anything too stupid? But I guess we'll find out. Uh, no, uh, we, we already know. You didn't say anything <laughs> too stupid, and and I and I do appreciate it. That was John Ray. John is John L. Ray on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.